Hi, I'm David Naiman, the host of the radio show and podcast Between the Covers. People are often surprised to learn that this is not my day job, that I don't get paid. But that's not why I'm here today. I'm not here to ask you for an income. Up until now, hosting the podcast has involved only nominal fees, but the podcast has seen explosive growth this year. Listenership has quadrupled in less than 10 months. And these once nominal fees have grown to many hundreds of dollars, which could easily become thousands next year and which I'm paying myself. So I'm here today talking to you in the hope of creating a sustainable model for me to nurture the podcast success. If you value these interviews, whether with great fiction writers such as George Saunders, Laurie Moore, or Juno Diaz, science fiction icons Ursula K. Le Guin, William Gibson, and Neil Stevenson, or genre-bending essayists and poets such as Claudia Rankine, Maggie Nelson, and Mary Rufel, I hope you'll become a patron of Between the Covers. Your per-episode contribution would be your way to participate in the show's long-term health. Please take a moment and either go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash between the covers or to david com slash support and give your support and enjoy today's program between the covers is brought to you in part through the support of propeller a magazine of books music art film and life and it's publishing imprint propeller books visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Ursula K. Le Guin, is best known for her science fiction and fantasy novels and her thoughtful, emotionally engaged, and politically astute essays about writing. She has published 21 novels, 11 volumes of short stories, four collections of essays, and 12 books for children. But Ursula K. Le Guin started as a poet and has a long-storied career as a poet as well, with six volumes of poetry and four of translation to date. These include the collections Hard Words, Sixty Odd, Incredible Good Fortune, and Finding My Elegy, They also include two collaborations with the photographer Roger Dorbland, the first Blue Moon Over Thurman Street, documenting the 45 blocks of the street Le Guin calls home here in Portland, its industrial warehouses, its poor and wealthy neighborhoods, its gentrification, and nearby forested trails. And their second collaboration, Out Here, is inspired by Le Guin's Home Away from Home, the Steens Mountains in southeast Oregon, including drawings and poems by Le Guin alongside Dorbland's photography. Le Guin has also written the poetry of the fictional Kesh people from her novel Always Coming Home, set to the music of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival resident composer Todd Barton, entitled Music and Poetry of the Kesh. In addition, Le Guin has collaborated on a book of poetry and translation with the esteemed Argentinian poet Diana Bayesi, each translating the other's works in the bilingual collection The Twins, The Dreams. She did her own translation of Lao Tzu's The Tao Te Ching, and did the first substantial translation of Gabriela Mistral's poetry to English, the first Latin American woman to win the Nobel Prize in Literature. It's with great pleasure to have Ursula K. Le Guin here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest book of poems, just out from PM Press, entitled Late in the Day. Welcome to Between the Covers, Ursula K. Le Guin. Thank you, David. So at the back of, of Late in the Day is your author photo, and it leapt out at me because it's very different than a lot of author photos that I've seen. And it made me wonder if it's composition 
tells us something about your orientation towards poetry. Um, for one, the setting, the natural world, takes up about two-thirds of the photo. Uh, nature, in this case the Oregon coast, with a pinkish-purple sky, shares the frame with the human figure and sort of contextualizes the human form within the natural world. But even more unusual, for an author photo, you're looking away from the camera. You're looking out towards the ocean, to the rocks, the sky, and it feels like you're almost inviting us to look that way with you, to contemplate with you. Does, does that resonate at all with your sense of poetics? Yeah, and it's a, it's a good description of the photograph. The photograph is actually a still from a documentary by Arwen Curry, which is in the making now. And I imagine Arwen and I had been talking, and there was a pause, and the cameraman just went click, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and I liked the picture very much, so I suggested it to PM for the, to use on the cover. What makes me feel like it suggests also that your poems aren't about you. Of course, they are also about you as the, as the viewer, but that your gaze is outward towards, other, towards the other. I guess so. I'm certainly not a confessional poet. Yeah. <laughs> I know you've talked about the phenomenon that happens sometimes when you're writing prose, when you're writing a novel, that you hear a voice, the voice of another inside of you that becomes the character that tells the story for you. Uh, and I was wondering if you feel like poetry was particularly suited to listening to contemplation versus prose. Well, that's complicated. I don't write very many persona poems, which is kind of the equivalent of the the voice of a character dictating to you in a novel. I have written some, but uh, poetry comes, poems come in their own different way, and it it tends to be a few words or even just a beat. Um, with a kind of aura about them, and you know that there is possibly a poem there. Hmm. Um, but they uh, sometimes they come very easily. But I've I've never felt like I was taking dictation with a poem the way I have felt with novels. Yeah, like that the 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 voice speaking through me was so certain of what it wanted to say that I didn't have to argue. So a very different sort of listening. Yeah. 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 Well, I know you don't write haiku, but there was a lot, uh, there were a lot of poems in Late in the Day that made me think about some of the, maybe a shared sensibility with haiku. And it made me go to uh, the essential haiku by, that was translated by Robert Haas. And I, mm -hmm. I wanted to go to the introduction to see if my instincts were, were uh, true in this regard. And what he says about haiku is that haikus are attentive to time and space. They mm -hmm. are grounded in a season of the year. The language is kept plain with accurate original images drawn from common life. And there's a sense of the human place within the cyclical nature of the world. And I felt like that, while you're not writing in the haiku form, I, I felt like those that's, yeah, that's things it. could that really fits. characterize... I feel totally at home with that. The thing about haiku in English is, to me, the form doesn't work in English. And that's for me. I, I can't think syllabically. I think rhythmically. Mm -hmm. And the, the syllable count is, it just doesn't give form to me. Um, that's, a, that's a shortcoming in me, not in the form. But, so my equivalent of the haiku is the quatrain, which is, of course, a very old English form hmm. with mostly iambic or trochaic rhythm usually with a pretty strong rhythm and often with rhyme. And are there some particular examples of poets who write in the quatrains that you love? Hausman. Hausman is the absolute master of, of the quatrain, yeah. And I kind of <laughs> I kind of grew up with Hausman for, what, 12 or 13 on. Uh, yeah, he goes deep. You have a section in Late in the Day that is quatrains called Four Lines. I have that in a couple of my books, yeah. Yeah. Could you read us a couple of those? Oh, I was thinking yeah. in mind, uh, Harney County, Catenaries, and Artemisia Tridentata. Harney County, Catenaries. 
Aloof and noble, the great buttes rear up their rimrock, let their slopes slide motionlessly down in the necessary curve from heaven. And Artemisia Tridentata. Some ruthlessness befits old age. Tender young herbs are generous and pliant. But in dry solitudes, the gray-leaved sage stands unforthcoming and defiant. You've been listening to Ursula K. Le Guin read from her new collection of poetry, Late in the Day, from PM Press. A booklist has a review of one of your earlier collections uh, called Going Out with Peacocks. And in it, it says that the book can be divided into poems about nature from which political concerns are not entirely absent and other poems that are a, a political where nature is not entirely absent. <laughs> and that felt like a, another like key into late in the day also that we have this. It, it's interesting how even in the nature poems, you get this this sense of in the background of uh of a, either a political concern or a political uneasiness. And you really frame this well by the foreword that you you start the collection with, uh, a reprint of a short talk you gave at UC Santa Cruz mm -hmm. at a conference called uh, The Anthropocene Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet. I'm hoping you'll read that for us it just as a way to sort of set the conversation for um, how these poems are brought together under the same umbrella. Yeah, I will. How can you write about nature now <laughs> without, well, I guess we have to call it politics, but without what we have done and are doing to our world, getting into the poem? It's, it's pretty hard to leave that out entirely. Okay, the, the little talk I gave is called Deep in Admiration. I heard the poet Bill Siverly this week say that the essence of modern high technology is to consider the world as disposable, use it and throw it away. The people at this conference are here to think about how to get outside the mindset that sees the techno fix as the answer to all problems. It's easy to say we don't need more high technologies inescapably dependent on despoliation of the earth. It's easy to say we need recyclable, sustainable technologies, old and new, pottery making, brick laying, sewing, weaving, carpentry, plumbing, solar power, farming, IT devices, whatever. But here in the midst of our orgy of being lords of creation, texting as we drive, it's hard to put down the smartphone and stop looking for the next techno fix. Changing our minds is going to be a big change. To use the world well, to be able to stop wasting it and our time in it, we need to relearn our being in it. Skill in living, awareness of belonging to the world, delight in being part of the world, always tends to involve knowing our kinship as animals with animals. Darwin first gave that knowledge a scientific basis. And now both poets and scientists are extending the rational aspect of our sense of relationship to creatures without nervous systems and to non-living beings. Our fellowship as creatures with other creatures, things with other things, Relationship among all things appears to be complex and reciprocal, always at least two-way back and forth. It seems that nothing is single in this universe, and nothing goes one way. In this view, we humans appear as particularly lively, intense, aware nodes of relation in an infinite network of connections, simple or complicated, direct or hidden, strong or delicate, temporary or very long-lasting, a web of connections, infinite but locally fragile, with and among everything, all beings, 
including what we generally class as things, objects. Descartes and the behaviorists willfully saw dogs as machines without feeling. Is seeing plants as without feeling a similar arrogance? One way to stop seeing trees or rivers or hills only as natural resources is to class them as fellow beings, kinfolk. I guess I'm trying to subjectify the universe because look where objectifying it has gotten us. To subjectify is not necessarily to co-opt or colonize or exploit. Rather, it may involve a great reach outward of the mind and imagination. What tools have we got to help us make that reach? In Romantic Things, Mary Jacobus wrote, The regulated speech of poetry may be as close as we can get to such things, to the stilled voice of the inanimate object, or the insentient standing of trees. Poetry is the human language that can try to say what a tree or a rock or a river is that is to speak humanly for it, in both senses of the word for. A poem can do so by relating the quality of an individual human relationship to a thing, a rock or river or tree, or simply by describing the thing as truthfully as possible. Science describes accurately from outside. Poetry describes accurately from inside. Science explicates. Poetry implicates. Both celebrate what they describe. We need the languages of both science and poetry to save us from merely stockpiling endless information that fails to inform our ignorance or our irresponsibility. By replacing unfounded, willful opinion, science can increase moral sensitivity. By demonstrating and performing aesthetic order or beauty, poetry can move minds to the sense of fellowship that prevents careless usage and exploitation of our fellow beings, waste and cruelty. Poetry often serves religion, and the monotheistic religions privileging humanity's relationship with the divine encourage arrogance. Yet even in that hard soil, poetry will find the language of compassionate fellowship with our fellow beings. The 17th century Christian mystic Henry Vaughan wrote, so hills and valleys into singing break. And though poor stones have neither speech nor tongue, while active winds and streams both run and speak, yet stones are deep in admiration. By admiration, Vaughan meant reverence for God's sacred order of things and joy in it, delight. By admiration, I understand reverence for the infinite connectedness, the naturally sacred order of things, and joy in it, delight. So we admit stones to our holy communion, and so the stones may admit us to theirs. We've been listening to Ursula K. Le Guin read from the foreword of her latest poetry collection, Late in the Day. As we were mentioning before, you read that wonderful piece. Um, it, it's impossible to write nature on, about nature honestly now without the political coming in and, and the, the human... The uh, responsibility. The res yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but if you were to skip the foreword and read some of the poems, someone might think there's not political on first glance and late in the day. But um, the forward seems to suggest that 
the advocacy for stillness and silence and fellowship is in and of itself a, a radical act. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. yeah. There are many nods in this collection to the relationship to time. Um, you, time. The book, the book <laughs> is partly, after all, it's called Late in the Day. <laughs> it was written in my uh, mid-80s. Yeah. So it's, there's a lot about that, yeah. Well, and you and you say time as being time is the temple, and then you, in the in the poem you have the Canada links, the 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 virtue of 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 moving in silence um, through space without it without a track and disappearing. Um, it feels like this goes along with some of what you're saying in the forward, and it also feels very much akin to Taoism. And I wondered if that felt like a Taoist evocation of, of time and space. There, there's almost certainly Taoism in it because it, it got so deep in me that everything I do, there's some Buddhism too. Mm. And of course the Canada lynx is also an elegy because we're losing the lynxes. You know, they are leaving quietly. Uh, so it's it's kind of mixed feeling there. It's It's praise for... Being able to move quietly, but lament also for the disappearance. For the for they're going away. Yeah. Right. In the first section of late in the day, you, you've entitled it "Relations," a, a nod to a fellowship, um, harmony um, with the other, and often these poems are are fellowship with um, objects in the in the relations <laughs> section, repetitive relations with a non-human or non-living objects. Um, and I would love it if you could read the small Indian pestle at the, the Applegate house so we could talk a little bit about what that poem does. Sure. That's, that's the first poem in the book, actually. The small Indian pestle at the Applegate house. Dense, heavy, fine-grained, dark basalt Worn river smooth all round, a cylinder with blunt round ends, a tool. You know it when you feel the subtle central turn or curve that shapes it to the hand, was shaped by hands. Year after year after year by women's hands that held it here, just where it must be held to fall of its own weight into the shallow bowl and crush the seeds, and rise, and fall again, setting the rhythm of the soft, dull song that worked itself at length into the stone. So when I picked it up, it told me how to hold and heft it, put my fingers where those fingers were that softly wore it down to this fine shape that fits and fills my hand, this weight that wants to fall and falling sing. I love the repetition in that poem. The, <laughs> the repetition of, of hand and held and hold, really evoking this sense of a repeated uh, fellowship with this object. It's, 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 a, it's fun to read that poem, but you know, it's all one sentence. And I almost always end up... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, it's interesting how it's also, it's a fellowship with the object, but it's also a fellowship with the person who made the object. Yeah, so yeah, it becomes a... Con, an, the people, the, the many, the many, because of course those, you know, pestles are big, heavy things. And if the Indians were wandering around, they left them and returned to them year after year at a certain season and so on. So when you, when you talk in the foreword about... Um, the techno fix and being against the idea of the of the techno fix, I bet a lot of people assume that means you're anti-technology. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm a luddite. Right. Instantly, yeah. Can you can you parse that out a little bit for us? Because here, this seems like the the pestle is a technology, just as language is a technology. It's a great technology. Yeah. It lasted us for hundreds of thousands of years. That's my my objection to the use of the word technology. Contemporary is that uh, people think technology means high technology, um, resource draining technology, such as we delight in. And of course, a mortar and pestle is a is a very refined technology and a very useful one. Um, all our tools, 
the simplest tools are technology. And a lot of them have been perfected. You, you can't improve on them for what they do. Uh, a kitchen knife. It does what a kitchen knife does in human hands, and it you can't beat it, you know. Um, you can get an elaborate machine that slices meat for you and so on, but th th there, you, there you go, you know. You're beginning to seek the save time or uh, don't touch it yourself thing that, that high tech leads us towards. And I just, I keep fighting this. There's people, you're, you're anti-technology. Well, come off it. You know, <laughs> I, do, I, I, I write with a pen or a pencil or on a computer. That's my job. It's, I use technology all the time. I, I couldn't. But, you know, if I didn't have the computer or the pen or the pencil, I would end up scratching it on wood or stone or something. Mm. Uh well, and it feels like the the quote you had of Mary Jacobus, of the regulated speech of poetry, is a form of technology too, a way towards fellowship or contemplation. I don't know if you can call language a technology. Technology really involves tools, and language is something we emit, yeah. uh, and and we have to learn it at a certain period, and or we can't, and things like that. Yeah. Language is so strange. Different. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you I love how you advocate for science and poetry in the yeah, forward. Yeah, I love them both. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that science explicates and poetry implicates. Can you can you talk more about wanting to subjectify the universe? I know normally when people think of subjectification, they think of something interior, maybe even self-referential. But here you're seeing it as a path towards reaching out. Yeah, um, it's been, there was a article by Franz Duval. Uh, this week in the New York Times about tickling uh, bonobo apes hmm. and getting the complete human, as it were, we think, response of giggling and yeah. drawing away but wanting more, you know, and so on. Marvelous, subtle article um, about relationship and how afraid we are of um, we want to, many scientists want to, objectify our relationship with animals. And so we cannot say that, you know, that the little ape is is acting just the way a little human would. You know, that's, no, it's, it's, it's responding only in ape fashion. We mustn't use human words. We mustn't anthropomorphize. And as Duvall points out, uh, it's only... Uh, whether it's negative or positive, um, it it's makes a lot of difference there. There's this kind of terror of fellowship. In other words, we we can't we're not to have fellow feeling with an ape or a mouse. Well, okay, mouse. There you get Robert Burns. I mean, come on. <laughs> Where's poetry without fellow feeling? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, you have this. You have a poem that I think deals with this issue of of subjectifying the universe and reaching outward really well, and it's the contemplation at McCoy Creek. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one to read. Um, it's a kind of philosophical poem, and I I will say a word about it. It was the word contemplation. I was out there in Harney County uh, without a library. Uh, wondering what the word contemplation, what does it mean? It seems to have the word temple in it. Uh, and con is together, you know. So that's where I started. And then, uh, this will explain kind of in the middle of the poem, uh, there was a book in the ranch house. It was a kind of a encyclopedia dictionary and it had a very good essay on the word contemplation, and that's so. This was sort of a learning experience. This poem, contemplation at McCoy Creek, seeking the sense within the word, I guessed, to be there in the sacred place, the temple, to witness fully and be thus the altar of the thing witnessed. In shade beside the creek, I contemplate 
how the great waters coming from the heights early this summer changed the water course. The four big midstream boulders stayed in place. The willows are some thriving and some dead, rooted in, uprooted by the flood. Over the valley in the radiant light, a raven takes its way from east to west. Shadow wings across the rimrock pass, as silent as the raven. Contemplation shows me nothing discontinuous. When I looked in the book, I found time is the temple, time itself and space, observed, marked out, to make the sacred place on the four-quartered sky the in-walled ground. To join in continuity, the mind follows the water, shadows the birds, observes the unmoved rock, the subtle flight. Slowly, in silence, without words, the altar of the place and hour is raised. Self is lost, a sacrifice to praise, and praise itself sinks into quietness. We've been listening to Ursula K. Le Guin read from her latest poetry collection, Late in the Day. There's a line at the beginning of that poem, Seeking the Sense Within the Word, that mm -hmm. reminded me of, of something you said in an interview with the Poetry Society of America. They had a column called First Loves, where they asked poets to talk about their first exposure to poetry. And, and you, you talked about um, a collection of narrative poems, Lays of Ancient Rome by Thomas <laughs> Babington Macaulay, and also the poems of Swinburne, um, and how you thought you learned through those poems that you could tell stories through poems, but also that the stories are often past the meaning of the words themselves, that there's a deeper meaning of story that comes from the beat and the music of the words, not from the meaning of the individual yeah. words. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, just, just to say that, that that deeper meaning, this is, this is where poetry approaches music because you, you cannot say what, you, you cannot put that meaning in words as, as a, intellectually comprehensible mm -hmm. it's just there and you know it's there and it is the rhythm and the beat and the music of the sound that, that carries it but of course that is to me this is extremely mis mysterious and rightly so robert frost talks about it or compares it to like uh, hearing somebody having a conversation on the other side of the wall and you're able to tell what they're what they're saying through the intonation and the rhythm, but you don't actually hear any of the individual words. You can tell what they're feeling, probably, but you, you may not be able to, you don't know what really what they're talking about even, hmm. but you know how they feel about it by the, the sound. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's neat. And, and when we had our conversation last year about steering the craft, your, your craft book for prose writers, you also mentioned this with regards to Virginia Woolf, who I know didn't really write poetry, no, I don't think. Never. But, but it's, is that a similar phenomenon? Do you think that what you learned when you were young with poetry around the meaning of the sound and what you've described uh, of the meaningfulness of, of Virginia Woolf to you when you write prose? Yeah, when, you, when you're talking about the sound and the rhythm of prose, it, it is so different from poetry because it's it's much coarser in a way. It's it's a very long beat, enormously much longer. The rhythms of a, of a prose work. Of course, this, a sentence has its rhythms too, and and uh, Wolf was intensely aware of that. She, she has that marvelous paragraph about about the rhythm is what gives her the book. But oh boy, it's hard to talk about. Hmm. Because it's sort of one of these experiential things uh, that we don't really have a vocabulary for. And I'm not sure. That, I wonder if there is a vocabulary for it. It's like talking, again, like talking about music. You can only say so much about music, and then you simply have to play it so the person can hear it and, right. and get it or not get it. Yeah. Right. Well, can you talk about some of the poets that you love as an adult um, what who are some of the who are some of your cherished cherished poets 
Well, I have to put Rilke very high. Hmm. Uh, I had McIntyre's translation of the Duino elegies one summer when I was, I needed, <laughs> I needed help. I was I was in a bad time, and uh, I kind of feel like some of the elegies got me out of it. They carried me through it anyway. And I don't read German. I don't know German. So Rilke and Goethe, I have to get with facing translations, you know, and then just work my way back and forth and back and forth. And uh, usually I end up trying to, I, I make my own crummy translation so I can work my way into the German words with a dictionary, you know, and feel my... And that is a very laborious way of reading poetry. But, of course, it, boy, you do it word by word. If you don't know the German nouns and you've got to look up every single one hmm. and the verbs are mysterious and they're not in the right place, you know, it's, it's a terrible language. But uh, by the time you've done that, you know the poem. Uh, you've kind of made your own version of it in English. And that's why I love translating from languages I do know and even from languages I don't, like Lao Tzu. Yeah. And you wrote the preface to the Book of Hours when New Directions released the Rilke. Um... Yes. Actually, the Book of Hours is not one of my favorite. Uh, I like later Rilke, but uh, he's a very strange poet, and a lot of what he says doesn't make any doesn't mean much to me but when he says things and it's the music even I know my father was a German speaker and I heard him speak German so I know what it sounds like uh, even if I don't know the language and so I and it's the music that, that carries it in reality often the strange rhythm he has it's wonderful can you talk about your attraction to translate Gabriella Mistral you 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 uh, oh, dedicate fell in love, <laughs> and you dedicate one of the poems in here to her as well. Uh, what was it that you fell in love with? I, I don't know. It was just love, at, not exactly first sight. But I didn't know very much Spanish when I started reading her. My friend Diana Bellassi in Argentina sent me uh, some selected uh, Mistral and said, "You you have to read this," you know. And so I labored into it with my Spanish dictionary, and I just fell in love. Wow. I never read anything like Mistral. There isn't anybody like Mistral. She's mm. very individual, um, and I, it's a it's an awful shame that Neruda, who is the other Chilean that got the Nobel, gets all the attention. But you know, men tend to get the attention, and you sort of struggle to keep the women in the eye of the men. <laughs> mm. Neruda is a very good poet, but uh, Mistral just has a lot more to say to me than he does. And what about the endeavor of of translating when you come back to your own writing? Do you feel like you can trace influences from the 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 efforts oh. of translation oh, when yeah. you're writing? Well, I can trace sometimes influences from individual poets and think, oh, oh, I'm I'm trying to do Rilke here. <laughs> Don't try that. You, know? <laughs> you you have an ongoing poetry group here in town that you've yes. had for a long time. Yes. Can you can you talk a little bit about its history and and how it works? I've been in several, quite a few writing groups. This is the 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 finest one I've ever been in. The one that works best for me. There are eight of us women. We're all over fifty now. I'm I, I'm the oldest. Um, Judith Barrington brought us together. Oh golly, quite a long time ago now. Uh, she dropped out after a while, uh, and we kind of reformed a bit, and uh, the eight of us have been meeting now for, I suppose, seven or eight years or more, once a month. And you give each other assignments, right? There's one person gives an assignment every month. You don't have to do the assignment, but it gives a little shape to the next meeting, and it's, you know, it can be an assignment in form or a subject uh, or even a kind of imitation of something some other poet did. Um, and so I, mostly people try to do at least one of the poems. We bring two poems every month, read them aloud and critique them. And we're, we've worked together so long now we can be very informal about that. 
But we do keep to the rule, the, the great rule of the working writers group is that the person whose work is being talked about does not speak and that you try not to interrupt each other. Hmm. <laughs> well, I really loved the afterword to late in the day entitled Form, Free Verse, Free Form, Some Thoughts, where you talk about the poetry group, but you also <laughs> talk about this realization you had from the poetry group assignments that form can give you a poem. And by that, you don't mean that just by following rules of some sort, you're going to get a poem, but you mean something else. Tell tell us what you mean by by the ways in which form provides a poem for you. Well, this this is touching back on that same mystery of form, rhythm, and so on. Uh, this is something that I think is is clear to many poets, but I was very slow to realize it. That by committing yourself to a certain form, uh, let's say let's say a, a really complicated one like a villanelle, which seems very artificial and unbelievably difficult when you first approach it. Um, certain lines are going to have to repeat themselves at certain intervals, and there's no you don't fiddle with that. If you write a villanelle, by golly, you write a villanelle, you know. You don't write something like it and call it a villanelle. <laughs> so anyway, take take the rules seriously. And somehow or other, as you follow them, you find that the necessity of having to do something gives you something to do. And uh, I don't know how that works, but it's... And it doesn't always work. Mm -hmm. Um Sonnet is probably the form most people think of when you talk about poetic form. And I find them terribly difficult. I write very, very few anymore. Um, maybe because there just are so very many good sonnets. Hmm. I don't know. That doesn't usually worry me. It's just not a form that's, that, I'm, that, works, that I work with very well. But quatrain now, which is a... Uh, a strict form, in a way, but the the, the major—it's just four lines. That's it. There no, there's no other definition, but you can make it just as strict as you please hmm. with rhythm and rhyme and so on. Um, It's—I think any artist in any medium will tell you the same thing: that if you're working to a certain form, that you have in mind whether you originated it or it's uh, something you inherited from other artists. You have complete freedom there. It's, it's in, in a way, I find uh, metric rhyming verse it gives me more freedom than free verse. Hmm. Uh, it's a different kind of freedom. Well, it reminds me of the Indian pestle in a way, though, if you if you take a form, you're also entering sort of a, a conversation with a history around the form yeah, as well. There so, is that. Yeah. And that that's kind of exciting, although you can't you can't think of that while you're writing because that would be scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and you'd said in, in, the, in your Paris Review interview that you could also look at genre as a form in fiction writing. And sometimes oh, yeah. by choosing to adopt a, f a form in fiction, you also will discover things that you wouldn't write otherwise. Absolutely. I mean, that, that I think anybody who's, who, who tries to write in genre seriously, who isn't just using it because it's chic at the moment or, or they think they could do better than uh, them hack writers, you know, and so on, um, they find that, Oh, I have to do it this way. So how do I do that? And then makes you, perhaps it, it there's a sort of commitment there that makes you take it seriously, hmm. and it opens up uh, avenues to you that you would not have thought of by yourself. The the form hands them to you. But again, it's it's, it's hard to describe. Yeah, but I was curious about. Um the absence or the relative absence of science fiction and fantasy in your poetry and wondering if... I can't put them together. Yeah. There, you know, there's, there is a, 
a science fiction poetry association, and and um, some poets that I grew up with, uh, like Tennyson, uh, were very good at, at, at doing a kind of science fictional poetry or putting science into their poetry. Um, my mind apparently won't won't come together there. Um, they're 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 different businesses to me. Yeah. And in the afterward, you talk about free form and free verse and how you do both. Um, uh, can you talk about what free form is versus writing in form? You you mentioned, I think, well, just, Gerald Manley Hopkins is taking a form but altering it. Yeah, if you're if you're a great enough poet, you can uh, you can make a Kirtle sonnet out of the sonnet. And I, I'm sometimes I sometimes I wonder about Gerard Manley Hopkins. I've never understood his sprung rhythm. I, I've tried and tried and tried, and doesn't make sense to me. And I'm not quite sure that a Kirtle sonnet is a sonnet, but it's a lovely form. So it's just in itself, you know. And that was one of our assignments in the group, and, and uh, yeah, I had to write one. I, I looked up the I was terrified. <laughs> <laughs> I looked up the definition, and I was uh, I was maybe a little lost in the terminology of it. But it said it is an eleven line poem. But in what what I read, that the first eleven lines are not of a standard sonnet. It consists precisely of three fourths of the structure of a Petrarchan sonnet, shrunk proportionally. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's that's kind of a complex way of, of doing it, but uh, yeah, yeah, and it has the very strange short last line. Yeah, can we hear that that curdle sonnet of yours on uh, New yeah, Year's Day? Sure. Uh, yeah, the the rhyming is um, it's fairly complex, and and yeah, what that also the description didn't say that it's broken into uh, six lines and then five lines. And there, there is a break, and that is kind of similar to the, the classic sonnet, it, which has that turning in the middle. New Year's Day. An eagle, anger with a broken wing, struggles inside my body and strikes blind to break the iron bars with iron beak. Far too late now for cure or soft healing, to such deep injury no hand is kind. Within me is the way the bird must take. In this cage, all the sky she can attain. The wide, clear, patient silence of the mind, where flight goes far and fierce thought can forsake words and seek distances out past all pain, ache, and heartache. We've been listening to Ursula K. Le Guin read from her poetry collection late in the day. I have one more poem I would love for you to read, and partly because I want to hear the story behind it. Um, it has, it's called Definition or Seeing the Horse, and it has subtitles in the poem that I, I would love to hear how they relate to the poem and how this form, how this form arose for you. <laughs> Okay, the, the third little section is called Judith's Fear of Naming, and that came from a, a discussion with Judith Barrington years ago where she was saying she'd rather not know the name of a bird uh, because it sort of uh, demystified the bird. Um, and I sort of said, oh, no, I, I, I want to know the bird's name. And we, we sort of argued back and forth for a while about it. And, uh, you know, of course, got, got nowhere. We each wrote a, a poem specifically, I think, sort of to the other about it, which is that would be, mine would be in another collection. But anyway, I was sort of circling back over that, and I don't know what got me started on it. Mm -hmm. um, I had just read Dickens' Hard Times, which is a, one of his finest books, I think. And so it starts, the poem is called Definition, or Seeing the Horse. One, Dickens' Hard Times. Girl number 20, define a horse. 
But Sissy, the circus rider, can't say what a horse is. To the schoolmaster, so blinded by abstractions, he can't see a horse. Two. Delacroix's drawing. This line of ink isn't around the horse. It ropes and bridles a certain thing seen from a certain angle on a piece of paper once. Something's caught, but nothing's kept. Three, Judith's fear of naming. She fears that definition will destroy the secret thingness of the thing, as if a dictionary could contain the rhythmic hooves, the nostril widening, the great hard-beating heart. To defines not to confine. Words can't reach so far. Even the poet's line can only hold a moment of the uncontainable. The horse runs free. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> Um, no, that's that's free verse. That's just right. I just let the lines find their their own rhythm. Yeah, and it, it seemed right for that kind of uh, just sort of thinking. When you received the National Book Foundation Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters in 2014, you gave both a, a beautiful and blistering speech that about the commodification of art versus the practice of art. And it became an immediate viral sensation. Um, I was my 15 minutes, <laughs> my, my Warhol 15 minutes. Yep. That was so amazing the next morning. To <laughs> yeah, I bet it was. <laughs> it was. Tell, tell, us, tell us why you decided to end the book with this speech as a postscript. Because BM Press asked for it. Hmm. it the, this book came out last fall, about a year after, just about a year after that speech. And I thought, okay, you know. Why not? Yeah. Well, you say in that speech that resistance and change often begin in art, that most often in the art of words that you see um, the beginnings of resistance and change. Yeah. I mean, after all, dictators are always afraid of poets, uh, which I think seems kind of weird to a lot of Americans to whom poets are not political beings. Hmm. But it doesn't seem a bit weird in South America or... Or any dictatorship, really. Yeah. Well, that seems like a good place to end with the poetry being the the fertile ground for resistance and change. Yes. It, it was great having you on Between the Covers again, Ursula. Thank you, David. We were talking today to the poet Ursula K. Le Guin about her latest collection of poetry from PM Press entitled Late in the Day. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening. <laughs>